are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Tombstone, which came out in 1993. It was directed by George P. Cosmatos and Kurt Russell. It stars Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton, Powers Booth, Michael Bean, Jason Priestley, Dana Delaney, Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, Stephen Lang, keep going, Michael Rooker, John Tenney, Thomas Hayden Church, Joanna Pacula, Billy Zane, John Corbett, Lisa Collins, Paula Malcolmson, Billy Bob Thornton, Harry Carey Jr., and Charlton Heston. The genre would be Western crime epic. In Tombstone, crime ruled the streets. Violence stalked the innocent. And every stranger was your enemy. Until Wyatt Earp and his brothers arrived. And now, all hell is about to break loose. Kurt Russell, Val Kilmer, Bill Paxton, Jason Priestley, Sam Elliott, Dana Delaney, Michael Bean, Powers Booth, Charlton Heston. You gonna do something or just stand there and bleed? Justice is coming to Tombstone. Could this be the most rewatchable modern Western? Well, to me, it's always been a close race between this and Silverado. And if we're including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which came out before 1970, that'd kind of be my cutoff here, then it's pretty much a three-way race. Since this film's surprise success 30 years ago, so much has been covered about the legend behind this movie's production. So let's just assume, with this review, that it was directed at different times by Kevin Jarr, George Cosmatos, and Kurt Russell. And the scenes do sometimes show that this was a Franken movie. There are some weird edits, several characters and side stories are kind of left hanging, and the narrative seems to rely heavily on montage during the third act. But that all said, it is still a glorious time. You have an absurdly stacked cast, several of whom are playing against type, like Michael Rooker playing the benevolent McMasters, who is a more gentle type than most of the other menacing characters who he'd been playing at this time. Reliable good guy Michael Bean playing the sinister Johnny Ringo, doing some genuinely weird stuff with his darting eyes that works even though it really shouldn't. <laughs> hey, Johnny. What that Mexican mean a sick horse is gonna get us, huh? It's quoting the Bible. Revelations. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. And the late, great Powers Booth, who had made a career up until this point of playing generally more serious, stolid roles. Well, in this particular movie, playing Curly Bill, we see more moments of uproarious laughter than probably Powers Booth's 15 roles before this combined. And every actor pretty much shines. 
Prettiest man I ever saw. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, St. Christmas Day speech from Henry V. Set the scene. God damn, Barnes. Shot the damn ear off. If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. But if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. He's got some nerve, I'll say that. What do you think, uh, Billy Nilly? I think he's wonderful. <laughs> Gentle in his condition. Gentlemen in England, now a bed shall think themselves a curse they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap. Whilst any speaks who fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. That's right. Hell, watching this again, this was the first time that I noticed that even Billy Zane, yep, Billy Zane of all folks, is delivering a strong performance as Mr. Fabian, the actor. I cannot honestly think of another time when Zane has shown more charisma on screen than with his limited screen time as the foppish actor who's turning heads in this movie. But at its core, Tombstone is the Doc and Wyatt show. Why, Johnny Tyler! Mad Cat! Doc? Where are you going with that shotgun? I didn't know you was back in town. Well, well. How the hell are you? Wyatt, I am rolling. Wyatt Earp? Going into business for ourselves, Doc. Well, I just got us Pharaoh game. Oh, since when is Pharaoh a business? Didn't you always say that gambling's an honest trade? No, I said poker's an honest trade. Only suckers buck the tiger. The odds are all on the house. Depends on how you look at it. I mean, it's not like anybody's putting a gun to their head now, is it? <laughs> That's what I love about Wyatt. He can talk himself into anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Johnny, I apologize. I forgot you were there. You may go now. Leave that shotgun. Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp and Val Kilmer playing Doc Holliday, they complement each other perfectly. And combined, they ensure that even though this might not be the most rewatchable Western, it is still probably the most quotable. I mean, just take your pick. This film is loaded with gems. Go ahead. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. You're so drunk, you can't hit nothing. In fact... You're probably seeing double. I have two guns, one for each of you. And they're all delivered by these two very well fleshed out main characters. And beyond that, all the mustaches, all the facial hair, fantastic. The costumes, the gunfights are well choreographed. But what makes this movie special is that central relationship. It's enough to make a grown man tear up at the end. <coughs> Doc, short of being dead, what the hell are you doing this for anyway? Wide up is my friend. Kill, I got lots of friends. I don't. This brings us to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Because music is essential to film. Now, remember that I mentioned Silverado? Well, yeah, that was a pretty fantastic modern Western in itself, which came out in 1985 and itself featured a very stacked cast. Just about every actor at the time who would not be cast in Tombstone eight years later. I mean, Kevin Kline, Danny Glover, Scott Glenn, Brian Dennehy, Jeff Goldblum, Kevin Costner. It's a blast. 
And besides both of these films being excellent ensemble westerns, the one other thing that these two movies have in common was the exemplary composer responsible for each film's musical score. And that would be Bruce Broughton. I definitely plan on reviewing Silverado at some point, and one of its most memorable aspects remains the very rousing score that Broughton composed for it. Pretty damn catchy theme, isn't it? Well, Broughton's score for Tombstone was not quite at that level, but it was still quite good. Just a very lush orchestral score, which checks off pretty much all the boxes that you would want from an epic western. There are foreboding themes, uplifting themes, romantic themes, and rousing themes, of course. And you have at least two distinct themes coming to fruition at a key point early in the movie, as the Earp brothers and their wives are just first arriving at the town of Tombstone, Arizona. Each one of the brothers, including Sam Elliott playing older brother Virgil and Bill Paxton playing younger brother Morgan, they each look very sharp. We see them coming off the train with lean, proud silhouettes walking into the frame, and this music is selling us not only on their vaunted arrival, but the enormous promise and risk headed their way in this bustling gold rush town. Now that first unnamed theme focused on the promise, and the second unnamed theme, which comes a bit later, sounds much more foreboding. All of this is driven by strings, horns, and just the right amount of percussion to keep reminding you that this is a western. Both of these themes are then repeated throughout the remainder of the film, but the track that we first hear them both on is fittingly called Arrival in Tombstone. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Okay, undoubtedly this is very much a guy movie. With a stacked cast likely including just about every major white actor. Yeah, there's not a lot of diversity here. Not at all, unfortunately. Above the age of 30 at the time of release. So where does that leave the females? Well, as you would expect, not much is given to the female cast. Which is often expected from this type of movie coming out around this particular time. Now, Dana Delaney plays Josephine, the free-spirited traveling actress who becomes somewhat of a love interest for Wyatt. They cross paths throughout the movie at different points, often with minimal dialogue. 
Except for one kind of silly, but I gotta admit, I still find it kind of charming sequence when they ride horses and even have a picnic and they bond. There's definitely some chemistry there. And Delaney delivers a solid, appealing performance. What do you want out of life? Jeez. How do you get these questions? Just answer. Well, I don't know. Make some money, I guess. Maybe have some children. I... Doesn't suit you. Well, how would you know? It just doesn't, that's all. Well, I ought to know my own mind, and I'm telling you what suits me as a family and kids. Suits me right down to the ground. In fact, that's my idea, Heaven. All right, what's your idea, Heaven? Room service. <laughs> oh, he's laughing again. But that's what I want. I want to move and go places and never look back. Just have fun. Forever. That's my idea of Heaven. Need someone to share it with, though. Only thing is... Um, Wyatt Earp is actually married at the outset of this movie to his wife, Maddie, played by Dana Wheeler Nicholson. And they pretty much remain married for the remainder of the story. So how much do we get to know Maddie then, his actual wife? Well, not very much. Her character is given arguably even less screen time than Delaney, and pretty much every scene that she's given has her character getting increasingly addicted to laudanum, which was a liquid form of opium at the time. Anytime we see Maddie, she's basically a combination of stoned, and annoyed at her husband. Will you go to her and tell her right in front of me, right out loud so I can hear you tell her she's nothing. You tell her she's nobody. She's just dirt. Will you do that? Yeah. Given that I have found this actress actually delivering enjoyable work previously in movies like Fletch or shows like Seinfeld, I can't really blame Dana either. And the ultimate insult towards the character of Maddie Earp within this movie? Well, she is given no on-screen resolution. Nope. We only hear during voiceover at the very end of the movie that she died of a drug overdose. While we are watching the final image of Wyatt and Josephine dancing triumphantly together for the first time. In the pantheon of thankless wife roles, this has got to be up there for sure. And now the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Rewatching this again recently, one thing which struck me was just how damn efficient that this movie is at introducing us to so many characters, all within the first 35 to 40 minutes, no less. Undoubtedly, much of this had to come from exemplary work in the editing bay. And yes, this movie had three editors, major props to each of them. Harvey Rosenstock, Robert Sylvie, and Frank Iriasti. Well, for me, the highlight of the movie occurs just after that introductory 40 minutes, when we first start to witness genuine tension building between the Earp clan, plus Doc, of course, and the gang, the Cowboys. All parties just had a raucous night at the theater and are now having fun at the nearby casino named the Oriental, which coincidentally is run by Wyatt Earp, who is also working as the blackjack dealer at a table where he is hanging out with Doc. And who should come by his table but both Curly Bill and John Ringo, who lead the Cowboys. Wide herb, huh? Heard of you. Listen now, Mr. Kansas Law Dog. Law don't go around here. Savvy? I'm retired. Good. <laughs> that's real good. Yeah. Yeah, that's real good, Law Dog, because Law just don't go around here. Yeah, I heard you the first time. Winner to the king, $500. <laughs> Shut up, I. <Ike. laughs> you must be Doc Holliday. <coughs> that's the rumor. You retired, too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. 
So you have a somewhat tense verbal introduction of the four key characters in this story, with everyone else of importance in the vicinity watching them, including both of Wyatt's brothers, several other cowboys, including Stephen Lang's petulantly combative Ike Clanton, and of course, the previously mentioned Josephine. All the key players are there to witness a non-violent standoff between Johnny and Doc, which I believe is the centerpiece of the movie. First, we watch these two trade banter in Latin. Everyone is staring everyone else down, especially Johnny and Doc, whose eyes are locked. The tension is ratcheted up to the point where we see a quick cutaway of Wyatt cocking his gun under the blackjack table, because he smells trouble is coming. Come on, boys. We don't want any trouble in here, not in any language. Us Latin, doll. Evidently, Mr. Ringo's an educated man. Now I really hate him. What's it, Johnny? I hear he's real fast. So we see Johnny first pull out his gun, and he puts on a nice demonstration of how fast he is with it. He's going left to right, over the shoulder. It's all very smooth, and then he holsters the gun. Now it's Doc's turn. And what he does is pretty much pantomime Johnny's movements, except with his tin drinking cup, looking very serious while doing this. And as folks start to laugh and clap, the tension starts to diffuse, capped off with Johnny himself then grinning back at him as he walks away. Major props, of course, have to go to Michael Bean, who you can tell really practiced his gunplay as the camera has the actor pretty much up close from the waist up and center frame so that you could see that each move is really his. Overall, it is just a fantastic sequence, which does as much with how we can see various side characters reacting to what's occurring than it does to build up the characters at its center. Great stuff. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. In recent years, it has become common knowledge that Kurt Russell ended up being the de facto director for most of this film's production even planning shots in advance of the actual hired director, George Cosmatos, before he would officially come out on set. And Kurt Russell apparently did this because the original director, Kevin Jarre, a writer who was directing for the first time, was attempting to make what he would have described as the godfather of westerns, filled with mostly long shots of several characters, so many scenes designed to advance various smaller subplots, and needless to say, he got in way over his head relatively quickly in the production. So once Cosmatos was hired as a, quote, ghost director at the urging of Russell, who was not only the main star, but one of the producers, well, Russell then took over with the goal of piecing together what Jar had left him with, while also using increasingly shrinking resources to craft the rest of the movie together. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Yep. Apparently, Kurt Russell and those three editors spent a lot of time in post-production in that editing bay, pretty much saving this movie and turning it into something cohesive. And the end product speaks for itself. Yes, it is somewhat messy, but it's thoroughly engaging for its entire 130-minute runtime, mainly thanks to that core relationship between Doc and Wyatt. I'm your huckleberry. Apparently, much of Kilmer's performance, including several distinct mannerisms, such as the way his character would sometimes stretch his arms out to physically challenge someone in front of him, yes, much of this was improvised. And what's interesting is that this character, Doc Holliday himself, he's very much a heel 
who is never beyond picking unnecessary fights with those around him. And even worse, he's not above murdering others, without even thinking about it. But we watch as his friendship with Wyatt inspires some kind of loyalty from him. So at the very least, we're always glad that he's on our side. (laughs) Even more so as an audience member, you also just cannot wait to hear what he will say next. It's one of those all-time performances that folks just never forget. Certainly among the actor's best, likely right up there with his amazing performance two years prior, playing Jim Morrison for The Doors. Honestly, at the end of the day, it is challenging to decide as to whom did more to not only save this troubled production, but to elevate it into a modern classic. So we'll just go the obvious route by anointing both Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer as co-MVPs. All right, Doc. All right, how many cards you want? I don't want to play anymore. How many? Damn, you're the most fallible, stubborn, self-deluded, bullheaded man I've ever known in my entire life. I call. You win. It was all you're the only human being in my entire life ever gave me hope. My rating for Tombstone would be four and a half stars out of five. Happy 30th anniversary to a film which is not only one of my personal favorites from the 1990s from that decade, a great decade, mind you, but likely my all-time favorite Western. And if you're looking to watch Tombstone, it is currently streaming on Fubo and DirecTV. And that ends another peach of a review. And a daisy if you do. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.